Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chijang, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing Yellow Jackets and The Great, two shows about the necessities of female savagery within the confines of a dangerous space, whether it be an 18th century Russian palace or a forest somewhere in uh, Canada. Yes, um, Canada. Yeah, yeah that's the one. Um, have you been, Jen? I've been. What's the week been looking like for you? I've been good. I'm uh, swinging back into New York for a little bit and catching up with new and old friends, acquaintances, coworkers, whatever you want to call them. And yeah. uh, if my audio quality sounds shit, that is the reason why. None of you can see this because we don't do like YouTube streaming or whatever, but I have my microphone currently taped to some semblance of a tiny little stand so it'll like stay propped up just giving you a little peek behind the curtain it's it, it's fantastic it's an awesome innovation <laughs> uh audio tech bros found dead you know <laughs> yes yes um i'm still i'm still shocked that you bought that mic over oh hell um, yeah we need you. to uh provide the crystal clear crisp audio for all yeah. of our listeners new and old which yeah again I, I don't know if we'll ever stop talking about this fully but thank you you all the new listeners and all of our old loyals we really are thankful for each and every one of you it is a bit nerve-wracking knowing that so many more people are listening to my voice but thanks yeah yeah well eventually it'll just uh inflate our egos and then we won't even be nervous anymore no, i'll get bigger <laughs> than it already is <laughs> um Pellin, how are you doing lately oh man busy with work mm. but i've been uh trying to get into the christmas spirit it's a bit different being out here for Christmas than it is in London. Like, no offense to you guys. London must be like storybook, like holiday Christmas season, right? Yeah. If it, I mean, if it isn't, you know, completely rainy and gray, which it usually yeah. is, but they make up for it with the Christmas puddings and treats mm. and the desserts and everything. And like the food and it's just it's a bit lacking here so yesterday oh. i ended up going to like this this shop in the west village that sells a bunch of british stuff mm. and it's so expensive it like pains me but it's also cheaper than a plane flight because i'm not going home right this christmas uh did you buy anything nice i got a bunch of chocolate treats and like a biscuit tin mm. um which is classic, but that's that's <laughs> been my week, just hunting for sugar. And speaking of hunting... Oh, oh yes! <laughs> um, speaking of hunting, <laughs> what did you watch this week, Valen? Uh So I've been watching Yellow Jackets. Honestly, like, I watched the first episode a couple weeks back, and I was like, right, I'm probably going to talk about this. I was just waiting until a couple more episodes trickled in so that we don't get caught off guard like the mosquito coast <laughs> remember that one but this is a show on showtime it is a show that kind of was on my radar because a bunch of critics were like oh this is surprisingly good and yeah guess what it's great like just from the first episode it will grab you mm -hmm. but it is created by ashley lyle Jonathan Lisko and Bart Nickerson. And it stars Juliette Lewis as Natalie, Christina Ricci as Misty, and Tawny Cyprus as Thaisa, and last but not least, Melanie Linsky as Shauna. And um, I didn't realize this until I started reading like reviews from it, but everybody apart from Tawny uh, are women that were at the peak of their acting powers in the 90s, and mm. that's how they got famous. And the reason why that's relevant is because this is set in 1996 and also present-day New Jersey. It's about a high school girls' soccer team who's playing crash lands on their way to a national championship tournament. 
and they were rescued after 19 months. 19 months. Insane. Yeah. So a year and a half, we, yeah. We, yeah, it's just so long. So we ping pong between the two timelines of 1996 and present day and between teenhood and middle age for the characters and the survivors. And in that back and forth, mysteries are presented in both timelines that are codependent on, on one another. So I I know that you recently watched this because we were going to talk about it, but how do you feel about it? I was a little bit nervous presenting to you because if, if you don't know this about Jenny, she does not do well <laughs> with body horror, does not do well with, uh, I guess, gratuitous M- most violence. Scary. Yeah, right. Most scary things in general. It was okay. I mean, I like in terms of the uh, threshold of my... I don't know, pussy nature or whatever. <laughs> like, I I had heard about it also because all the critics were, were, were buzzing about this. Um, and I wanted to check it out too. But also I was like, I'm not going to get Showtime. So, but yeah. thankfully you you made me get Showtime for this because uh, it's a really good show. I'm super intrigued so far. There is like, uh, uh, there are like shots very closely of like mangled legs and mm-hmm. um bodies that have been impaled and like yeah a bunch of shit that you would find in the ruthless lawless place of the wilderness yes. um and i really can't wait for them to get deeper into what has been playing out uh yeah. so far it's they're really like they know how to withhold information and revelations and they're it's like a slow torture to wait to see these things come out but in in the best way possible you're all caught up right yeah all four episodes that are currently out and i think by the time this podcast episode comes out there will be one yeah the fifth one will be out it is definitely a slow drip and i think part of the reason why a lot of critics were keen on this is because karen kusama the incredible director of jennifer's body the invitation destroyer she is not only an executive producer for the entire show but she also directed the pilot and the thing about tv is like as the director of the pilot you kind of set the tone the visual tone Mm. of the rest of the series and um yeah that is not missed on anybody that understands like stylistic differences tone differences because you know before we had talked about amazon primes the wilds mm-hmm. which is a very very similar premise and i feel like you know yeah after the after the popularity and the cult favorite loss i think everyone was trying to do their version of Lost, and we were t- we talked about the wilds which is about a bunch of teen girls that crash land and we, you know, we do a deep dive on all the different girls and whatever. It's definitely different. That The, the fact that they crash land, I think, is, and that they're all girls is like the similarity. Mm-hmm. The, the thing about Yellow Jackets is that it's because of Karen Kusama, because of the way that it's written by the creators, it's just so gritty. It's far more gruesome, obviously, like we just mm-hmm. mentioned. It's pulpier. They really lean into the 90s theme, mm-hmm. like whether it's like a Riot Girl soundtrack, you know, you've got PJ Harvey playing, you've got Hole playing. And, you know, you've got all these, like, actresses that used to be famous in the 90s. They know what they're doing. Yeah, you know, the, in terms the of performances time. in this are, like, on, as a whole, much, much better than uh, a lot of the stuff in the wilds. Yeah. You know, part of it is this whole attempt at trying to do a female or a gender swap Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have said, oh, that would never happen with girls and oh like girls are innately more civilized or gentle yeah, or something yeah yeah we're more civilized we'd work together as a team and i think what this show is challenging is that very concept of like civilization and and femininity and like girlhood mm-hmm. and what that means 
because the strength of this is that it's trying to explore, you know, the darkness of female violence or the darkness of female savagery. Like, what is it? I, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. What is it that people find so fascinating about it? And what what do you think is different about like masculine violence and feminine violence? Not to get, you know, two gender studies about <laughs> it. But, um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the female unleashed passion or unleashed emotion, I think, has been one of the things that historically is, like, feared by men. Like, they, you know, when so- when when a woman gets, you know, a little louder or, uh, you know, is shown more emotion, they're like, don't get too hysterical. And, like, the, the hysteria yeah. is, like, that's an aspect that historically, like, actually, mm-hmm. you know, has been, like, assigned as... Uh, a disorder or an illness or something for, you know, a woman just being like more emotional uh, or, yeah. or louder or crying or something like that. A medical term, a medical diagnosis. Yeah. And yeah, I think there's almost a th- this like fear of women flying off the rails. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's a sort of fear about what that will actually look like, what that does, the kind of threat that it could be and, and pose to, to men as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's like almost this kind of like not f- fetishizing exactly, but a little bit of like a fetishist like yeah. male gaze on it at the times. Like, I don't know, mud wrestling or when when yeah. two, two girls get into a cat fight or something. Like the violence gets transformed into this thing that's like for the pleasure of, of men who are watching it at times. So it, it, yeah, it's a really like complicated interesting idea and i think in general society quote-unquote society capital s society like they like we don't really know what to do with female violence yeah because if it isn't i think in terms of the gaze if it isn't directed at them they are far more comfortable observing it Mm -hmm. in terms of like men yeah i completely agree i think it has been a source of fascination and fear like both of these things have been held by society over time and i think you know, something like Yellow Jackets and also like speaking of Karen Kusama, like something like Jennifer's Body mm-hmm. as well. I think the fact that that became, it, it didn't do well in the box office and now it's a cult favorite, for example. Yeah. I think that, that there has been a shift towards that not so much fear, but fascination now. I like it because I do agree with the premise of something like Yellow Jackets, which is that feminine or female violence is, it cuts deeper or it's more exacting and it's it's not, as brutish but it is as lethal as you know masculine violence for example i agree that that might be true i think like we you and i both we we were teen girls once and we understood the meanness of that time and what it was to be a teenage girl with other teenage girls i think i would have an issue with the yellow jackets if one of the showrunners wasn't a woman because i do find that whether it is the mystery of women or the mystery of uh, female violence. I, I do find a lot of male filmmakers, especially trying to tackle this subject of, of feminine violence or like society being scared of a dangerous or a loud woman. Mm. Um, and I just think that that's for women to tell that story. But yeah, I, I'm curious to see where they're going to go with what ha- what ends up happening in the forest, because that is definitely the more interesting side of it because we go between two timelines right mm-hmm. i just i prefer whatever's happening in the forest so much more than what's happening present day middle age even yeah. though i love melanie i mean that's Linky. just <laughs> it's just like innately more interesting right like purely yeah. based on like plot and and story like we want to know 
they teased like at, at right up front in the first episode they teased some of the depths of darkness that this is going to descend to and everything that we see like presumably will be leading us up to that so it's like totally natural i think for for us as viewers to be a little impatient to be like okay we want to see what happens in the forest like how does how does everything unravel in these 19 months and then the you know the current modern day everything that happens right now is kind of you know a direct consequence or at least like a a reference back to what happened in the past so I would probably like a little bit more uh, time spent in the past, honestly. But I, yeah. I guess I like get what they're trying to do here with the showners. Do you have a favorite out of the girls, young or old, or both? <laughs> well, I really like the teen portrayal of Natalie. Mm. That's Sophie Thatcher as a young, I don't know, sixteen-year-old or or something. Natalie. It was just kind of strange because. You know, Juliette Lewis plays her as an adult, and yeah. I feel a pretty big disconnect between the two performances. And yeah. I don't know if it's because of, you know, the trauma that's happened to them, like, and also, like, the character's substance abuse. Did that something happen to make her change radically? But I yeah. kind of almost prefer the teen version of Natalie yeah. instead of Juliette Lewis, who is like, uh, I respect her a lot. I think she's normally great, but I just, it's not really gelling for me in the same way yeah the two of them are good in their own respect in terms of the fact that they're meant to be the older younger versions of themselves is the part that i don't really buy as much either Mm -hmm. yeah Um, what about you character wise i mean speaking of two characters that play older younger versions of themselves perfectly i think the character of shauna oh yes yeah melanie linsky plays the older version of shauna and sophie nalise plays the younger version of her and they could be related like yes. they could be physically they look mother, so daughter. similar yeah and i don't know i don't know how sophie nelise actually talks but i can tell that she's like melanie linsky's way of talking is very specific to her like you know it's her if you were to hear her on a podcast you'd be like oh that's melanie linsky and i feel like uh sophie nelise really kind of picked up on the way that she talks mm-hmm. and i think in terms of characters i like the mystery around her i like that she kind of like stays off to the side she's a little bit you know, with ensemble casts about stuff like this, there's always the one that's like extremely aggressive and violent, mm-hmm. and then there's always one that's like a bit snaky and yeah, we I get the archetypes that all, all all the time, all the time, yeah. And I think she's a little bit of that in between that you know it begets more mystery, right? She's the quiet girl, the somewhat she's headed to brown. She's like a little yeah. bit smarter, intellectual, um, yeah. But definitely, especially I see, I think. Both in the the teen version and the present day version, you see the flashes of darkness, or you see like how she yeah. is not really have that many like moral qualms about doing bad using bad stuff. Yeah, like yeah. using yeah. using people, using her sexuality, using or just like flashes of violence or uh, hostility, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's aimed at you know, a rabbit in her garden or yeah. uh, her best friend. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there there is like some kind of like interiority and like depth to her that yeah. is interesting for a and main I, character. I, 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 yeah, for sure. And I think part of it is the fact that, you know, we talk about that feminine violence or whatever, but I think it can be as quiet as, as it is for the way that it's depicted with Shauna because there's resentment there. Like she, like we see her resentment before mm-hmm. the plane crash. We yeah. see it you know directed at her friends and the way that she feels like she has to survive emotionally in her own way to kind of make herself feel good about herself Mm -hmm. um 
And yeah, I think that's a little bit more nuanced. I uh, I think one of my critiques is also uh, the character of Thaisa. Mm. And I kind of struggle with something like this about the choice of making her someone that's trying to run for office or run for a position of power. Mm-hmm. So her older, Thaisa's oldest uh, self is, she's trying to run for state senate. I get it because I think someone there needs to be striving for something and is at risk by her past and that kind of creates that drama. But there's just something about her character that I think is missing what's interesting about her specifically. I, I thought I thought the part about her uh, grandmother dying was mm-hmm. really cool. The thing about this show is that it sometimes leans into like horror. Yeah, like almost there's hinting at like some kind of supernatural element, which I don't know if they're actually going to like bring out in full force, which would yeah. change the show, I think. Or if they're like just going to make it more of a... A state of mind and like psychosis or whatever yeah i mean i hope they i hope they just kind of dance around the is there or isn't there question but i I like how her surroundings in terms of in her house it feels like a horror movie <laughs> and i think the use of her son who oh, is creepy amazing <laughs> like speaking of great child actors like he's so good and the way that his scenes are going out or like really creeping me out which is which is perfect um shout out to aiden stocks who plays her son yeah um, really unnerving <laughs> that scene in the cupboard i was like oh, so holy creepy. shit <laughs> like it's so good so i i just i think i don't know whether it's like necessarily her character that i have beef with or the trope that her character presents that i have beef with yeah um, she is like pretty you know, of course, the archetypes are all there. Like we've yeah. we we said, we've seen it. The Wilds also has all these archetypes, but in many ways, she's like kind of a one to one match with a character in the Wilds who's also like this this athlete, the swimmer who's super competitive, yeah. who is like obsessive, who obviously that is a true type of person, but. Yeah sometimes i guess the extreme lengths that that kind of person goes to can fall a little bit flat yeah but i think overall like the strength of this is going to be the way that it deals with not only trauma in the more immediate sense when they're teenagers on in the forest and also how they deal with it as as middle-aged women and i think this kind of theme of trauma obviously is like a favorite (laughs) um of recent time (laughs) especially with regards to female driven or female forward tv shows yeah, trauma's interesting. Trauma's fascinating. Grief, mm-hmm. all of that. What do you think about like the way that it's trying to tackle that that <laughs> very heady theme of trauma? I think it's doing uh, a good job so far, but I think it is a little early also because I would like to see we just there's just so much we don't know that hasn't been yeah. revealed yet. Um but so far I think it's almost everything is like working for me. So I yeah. think it's a a great show so far on that front yeah i mean every single character of of what we understand to be the only female survivors right like yeah that, I yeah think that's they, part they, of it. they might there could be a lot of red herrings yeah uh, yeah we like we don't we don't know who made it out i think so far each person apart from misty <laughs> i think is dealing with their trauma in their own way but I think what makes or breaks this show in terms of the end of the season and, and the questions that it might present and answer or not is the promise of the reveals for the current timeline when, when they're in middle age. Because it just seems to be like... That's kind of what sets it apart. Yeah, yeah. That's that's going to be what makes it more like a lost than a wild. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah 
we'll be watching. Uh, we'll check back in, give an update with the season finale. But this is something that I'm really enjoying so far. And I think it's something that is missing from my TV diet. And I do love that it's a weekly release because it works really well with that unraveling of mystery. So if this sounds like something that's up your alley, give it a go. Okay, Jenny, and what was uh, what was your pick this week? So I watched The Great on Hulu. This is in a historical mm-hmm. historical <laughs> comedy slash drama uh, series created by Tony McNamara, um, who you might know because uh, he co-wrote The Favorite, the the film that is similar in tone and genre, and is also kind of a weird, wicked delight. So this series. It follows the rise of Catherine the Great, who, if you know from history books, she became Russia's longest ruling female leader after she married Peter III and eventually overthrew him in the 18th century. Mm. So season one of the show was kind of more about the transformation of Catherine from this naive new bride and uh, outsider to the court into an ambitious, progressive minder, and ultimately, like, ruthless coup stager. And season two, which premiered in November, it kind of deviates even more from history, and the show is, like, acknowledging and aware of that. Mm -hmm. And it ends up keeping Peter alive, which did not happen in real life. Mm -hmm. And he's around as uh, he and Catherine both struggle with their relationship, their pregnancy slash new baby and growing threats to Catherine's rule coming from all sorts of different sides. Yes. Uh, so Catherine is played by Elle Fanning and Peter by Nicholas Holt. Those are the two main ones. Um, there are some other supporting cast members, but these are above and beyond the the reason to, to keep watching. Oh, yeah. So how far a lot on this are you, Pellin? I've finished both seasons. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We can talk uh, in full about Let's this. Go. So. Yeah, I think what makes the show a fun watch is above all this tone that it has, yeah. like the the very playful, often violent, often really indulgent, and often very absurd tone that it clearly just like relishes in. Also, Fanning and Holt, who they play their roles so wholeheartedly, like they they yeah. throw themselves into these characters, and I think they also have some genuine chemistry together what do you think yeah i agree i think it's so i didn't really grow up with Elle fanning as like a child actor and i think Mm -hmm. many people when the series first began were struggling with her a little bit because they just know her as this cherub-cheeked young baby and here she is playing like this fully formed woman you know and Mm -hmm. an object of sexual desire Mm -hmm. ostensibly right so I, that that I think people were kind of grappling with that, and for me that was never an issue because I didn't ever see her like that. And I've also known Nicholas Holt since the Skins days, so I essentially yeah. grew up with this guy. We're about the same age, and <laughs> because he has always been in, you know, his character in Skins was obviously different, but I think just being the guy that's like hot and also fucks about and is a little mm-hmm. bit heady. Mm-hmm. Very similar because he has that kind of look and them together, uh, like, you know, with Elle Fanning's innocence, I think works really well in season one. And I think mm-hmm. seeing her growth into season two as a character and the way that she's kind of formed along with it. Yeah, it's great. And I think the both of them, but yeah, like you said, they don't take themselves too seriously. And I think that kind of is necessary for these characters that feel like almost overly comedic, but 
in yeah, the, in the so points like cartoon characters. Yeah, in the points where it's serious, they also know how to kind of change that tone and kind of bring that emotionality. Yeah, they have pretty good range uh, in this, which you know makes them kind of versatile as as performers together. So season two, the plot it gets a little bit messy, but it's it's basically like a balancing act of. You know, it literally, Catherine has to balance her desire for progress with appeasing nobles and, you know, not getting overthrown and not getting killed. Yeah. And there are a lot of storylines kind of on that front, almost too many, I would say. Mm. But also the show is balancing this palace and political intrigue with the romantic beating heart that powers the the main through line, which is that Peter and Catherine are in love, like truly, finally, mm. after a season one where it's kind of more like love hate slash more hate relationship. Yeah. And I'll say like I kind of miss how much of a like devious little prick that Peter was yeah. in season one. Yeah. He's still really charming here, but definitely kind of like defanged. He no longer is this kind of like rival enemy going head to head against Catherine, yeah. like this even match. I don't know. Did you like how his character was sort of developed here? I did. Because I think, so we talk about the balancing act that Catherine has to do, but the balancing act of their relationship as well, I think was done really, really well. Like in terms of you can possibly confuse the audience with the way that Peter can sometimes listen to his friends in the court and end up going down the route of just essentially just out and out rebelling against Catherine but mm-hmm. the way that he internally processes it you can you can say that that's confusing but I wasn't confused at any point and I think it he as a character sold it to me that he was confused and also that he justified being a bit softer in the in the times that were necessary mm-hmm. I think it essentially paid off because once you get to the end and you see the thing that they have to grapple with at the end of season two, I think it sets it up for knowing how their relationship is then going to transform for season three. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I guess basically he's going to stick around. Yeah. Uh, at this point, maybe the, the grand, grand finale of this, this show, uh, whenever it ends is going to be finally killing him off. Yeah. But for now, like these two, the way they orbit each other, the way they, are stuck in this like little dance of falling apart coming together again like sort of suffering and how much they they love each other but also like are a threat to each other yeah that is kind of the the main thrust of the show and but what was also interesting to me in season two is kind of showing a little bit more how Catherine is just as crazy as everyone else but in a in a slightly different way um, so in season one, you know, she was much more of this kind of like, oh, young maiden, you know, uh, idealistic and, and seen as like perfect and beautiful and pristine in many ways. But this season, I think, did a better job of showing, developing her more and showing how like in this historical context, uh, she's very much like a nut, like a heretical nut, oh, basically. Yeah. yeah. And it's good to be reminded, I think, in in a lot of the ways uh, she interacted with other characters and her own mother, for instance, Mm. to be reminded of the fact that she just completely doesn't understand how the world works in a lot of ways or doesn't understand people like commoners or or nobles. And and she is just so determined to bend the world to her will that uh, she's just an autocrat herself even if she is a more progressive minded autocrat yeah it answers that philosophical question of like if you want power no matter how 
clean your intentions and how good you want to be and how much you love the country you're yeah you're, you're essentially morally challenged (laughs) no i i like that too i think i think it kind of did a good way of like showing its hand a little bit yeah and also like the idea that progress doesn't come cheaply like Mm -hmm. there's a cost to everything um it kind of reminded me like i think and a lot of you know shows and and works and films that kind of deal with this question of rising to power they also include this lesson or theme or whatever like i'm thinking of Mm. uh, the king which i also watched Mm, uh, on netflix someone randomly recently but it was like okay for all the ideals you have all the the ways that you think you want to improve people's lives and and wars and stuff the ability to do that only comes with absolute might and to do that you have to there is a cost of that you're gonna have to kill some people or you're gonna have to wage whatever kind of thing like people are resistant to change so it's the like, do the ends justify the means and that whole philosophical question? Yeah. Well, I mean, that that last... I think the appeal of something like the Game of Thrones was all about that. Yeah. And, um, you know, whatever happened to Daenerys for that last season also, you know. Yeah, and how that, does that so. transform you yeah. um, as a person and <laughs> does it corrupt? Yeah. Like, is it is it enough? Like, all these kind of more interesting questions. Although, of course, the show, like, approaches it in its own way which is a little bit less serious a little more absurd um but also like showing through these like smaller moments of uh revelation and and true emotion it's also just like really beautiful to look at yeah dude the (sighs) set design the costume design they did not they're not fucking about man these costumes were like i thought season ones were good but these ones like fucking her coronation outfit just so like nice impeccable oh my god like the framing that they have for paul especially and his his friends because he's most of this season he's kind of cooped up in one room so they they have a lot of fun with the framing for whatever mm-hmm. his friends are doing in that room or whatever he's doing in that room yeah it just it looks amazing it looks really good yeah i think i really liked how much more rambunctious it got I know that it was like pretty intense. I I don't know if I'm forgetting, but I I just felt like season two was a little bit more like sexual, was a little bit more horny. Yeah, which I I I welcome with open arms. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I guess it was this was like it wasn't afraid to kind of unleash a little bit more, yeah, um, more debauchery, more violence, more uh, more sex, more fucking someone out of a window. Yeah, um, exactly. Which is funny, I guess, how often that happens. Yeah. in historical historical shows yeah my my favorite thing i think in terms of the sex scenes is throughout it both for season one and two there's not a lot of skin showing like everyone just kind of like drop your pants and then like lift your skirt up and you don't really see anything but then for the last i think episode or the last two episodes nicholas holt especially is showing a lot of skin and and so is Elle fanning sorry spoiler Mm. alert but <laughs> I did love how much kind of stepped it up a little bit. It kind of it was like a different kind of erotica. Like the the sex that they're having from season one to two is so comedic. Yeah. Fucking is just funny, you know. And then yeah. you get to the point where it's so much more intimate, and that is obviously yes. with the use of showing skin. Um, I honestly had such a fun time with this, almost as yeah. much as I had season one. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's just like. The, the top recommendation like one could give for this and the, the way to describe it, I think, is just like it is a romp, yeah. um, an absolute romp. Yeah. And I think that is the, the main draw of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun time, man. 
So this week in culture, we promised already that we would talk about the Jeremy Strawn profile that is getting everyone in a tizzy. Um, So in case you're not aware, Michael Shulman, a writer for The New Yorker, he profiled Jeremy Strong of Succession. Actually, like, I guess by now this this profile came out a week or a couple weeks ago. And at first, this profile kind of caused some waves because... Some people were interpreting this uh, in the way it described Jeremy's acting methods as him being like a, a toxic, terrible asshole who everyone hated. Yeah, That was kind of like the first wave of reaction and backlash to this. Mm-hmm. And then just when we thought it was kind of like dying down again, uh, celebrities started waiting in. So yeah. we have, I think but at this point by now, Jessica Chastain was the first to kind of stick up for Jeremy Strong than Aaron Sorkin. Um, and it's funny because Jessica actually posted Aaron Sorkin's statement on his behalf. Yeah. Then we have Adam McKay, um, who, of course, basically hired Jeremy Strong for succession. And we also have Anne Hathaway, who took to Instagram to say nice things about Jeremy Strong. So we have all these famous people sort of like piping up um, in a way that, you know, you would think they only do for uh, whatever activist cause at the moment. Mm, And they're just like totally caping for him. And the whole thing is kind of annoying, I guess. On one hand, you had the the readers with no reading comprehension who are like, this means that Jeremy Strong is the hugest asshole who makes everyone miserable. And then on the other hand, you have these celebrities who can't read, and they're like, this profile was a hit piece. And neither of those are true. Yeah, and the your average Succession fan consider themselves to be the intelligent TV watcher, I think, mm-hmm. right? Would yeah, you agree? I would agree with that, yeah. yes. So, <laughs> so when this piece came out, I think uh, what, you, what you were talking about in terms of it feeling like Jeremy Strong is a little bit insane for being the way that he is and and kind of suggesting that he's like super intense because the backstory with with this is that even before this piece came out, I think the word on the street was that Jeremy Strong is a little bit separate from the rest of the cast of Succession. And he is a method actor and he takes himself very seriously. But this kind of like really filled in the lines for us. What ended up happening was initially people were like, this is intense. He's a bit intense. Uh, why is he like this? Lol, right? Mm-hmm. And then you had eventually, especially, you know, your peak Succession fan that was like, actually it's fine that he's like this and actually shout out to him for really being dedicated to the Kendall cause right yeah which is kind of the view that I guess I would more closely subscribe to or like it's it's fine because you know he had this quote especially in the profile where he was like I don't believe that creative work is always you know very easy or without like conflict like this is this is what I do and I'm like really dedicated to it and I agree with that in general like creative work it doesn't have it's not always defined by friction, but it can be. It like can it, be, yeah. It, it totally can it's be. yeah. It's not like necessarily an easy thing to pull off with uh, just like this grace and elegance. And I think it, it was real. And I, I thought I support Jeremy right, uh, Jeremy Strong's right to be kind of an intense, weird guy yeah. as long as he's not like a fucking raging asshole and like 
harassing people, abusing yeah, people. Like, exactly. and it, it doesn't seem to be the case. Like from even what was presented in the profile, I wouldn't interpret any of it as yeah. being that way. I mean, creative work, it's up to the creative how they want to navigate their creative work. It really is. Like it might not be necessarily healthy for their mental health. So that's what I'm, I subscribe to the notion of like, if that's what he feels he has to do to get that performance, then that's what he has to do. Like he's been hired to do that. So everybody right. mind their business Loki. like it might be annoying for everybody else for him to you know not want to be in the makeup trailer with anybody else this- but if it's not causing like like insurmountable hurdles no. like fine whatever and yeah. it doesn't seem like it is but you know eventually you have people who start weighing in and they're like you know a woman can never get away with this kind of behavior like of course it's another method like people only do method acting if they want to be assholes basically yeah. and, and it's like, all this kind of stuff it's like that thing that brian cox said uh i think it was brian cox that brought it up or maybe it was uh michael shulman but lawrence olivier telling dustin hoffman like my boy why don't you try acting um that was yeah which yeah. Is, uh, absolutely yeah brian cox, that, that's what yeah. works for lawrence olivier he's like this is the difference between like i guess american and european actors there is a little bit of division between work and <laughs> play uh, yeah, which just says something talks. about the the culture anyway but yeah i think there's a reason why jesse armstrong hired the guy and there's a reason why he's kept him around and i think there is a kernel of every single one i think every single one of the actors whether or not we've heard about it there is a kernel of truth to their characters that is within the actor that really helps the final performance like someone like kieran culkin being one of the brothers of the culkins of the more famous culkin i think says something about his performance as roman and i Mm -hmm. think kendall being self-serious and you know jeremy strong being super self-serious i think that sometimes you can't act that sometimes you just need that kernel of truth but anyway so yeah what ended up happening what ended up happening with this is that a lot of i think starting off with jessica chastain maybe they all have a group chat where they were just like completely (laughs) pissed off for him and they took this profile as like well this is really mean and it makes him seem like a fucking idiot and I just, I think there wasn't anybody around to be like, well, some people don't think it that he's an idiot. Some people actually love this about him, but maybe they took that as like patronizing. I don't know. Yeah. Well, in any case, like they did not understand fundamentally like what makes a good profile. Yeah. And this is a very good profile. It's, it's so good. It's really well written. It's very revealing. It truly gives you insight into the subject this person yeah. jeremy strong and the that is like i guess one of the topics that has arisen because of this which is like wither the celebrity profile like we've become very used to puff pieces yes. to yeah. pr sanctions profiles yeah. to not even profiles by journalists anymore but like right. uh celebrity on some other celebrity oh, interviews worst, or something the like absolute that seventh circle of hell yeah. yeah and like i don't know there's this kind of people miss i can certainly say for myself like i i miss like really good profiles yeah and profiles that can maybe be interpreted as like taking a punch but also like they're in general like they're fair they're balanced but they also maybe show sides that aren't entirely flattering to the person that's that's yeah it's it doesn't have to be flattering to the person yeah um not that this profile isn't because like i came away with kind of like a a respect for for jeremy strong and his dedication but Yeah. yeah i mean these these famous people were just like 
this profile is one-sided. It's a hit piece. It's really mean. It's not true. Mm. Um, and I also think it's really funny to me that this trending topic was already dying down yeah. when they decided to wade in because this just reminds you like of what a weird, disconnected plane that the celebrities live on that yeah. they <laughs> just didn't yeah. know that this topic had already died down. And they're like yeah. a week later, like, Actually, I gotta wait in. Yeah. I gotta weigh in here and defend my boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought that was hilarious. It is hilarious. I feel like it's two running streams. I feel like a puff pieces are on the rise, and access to celebrity is people navigate it through that. You know, if there's a writer yeah. that is usually very positive with their profiles, they will get more and more profiles. <laughs> and yeah, and that's one stream of it. And I think the other stream of it is that the celebrity is now far more quicker to communicate into the wider world than they used to be like they, yeah they, they control behind, their own narrative yeah they used to hide behind publicists and now they don't have to and which yeah is they why... just do a notes app on social media exactly but i mean like on the journalist side it's like a few things right it's yeah it's one the access is really hard to get because yeah actually the publicists if they don't aren't speaking for the celebrities that more they at least like gatekeep them a lot tighter yeah, now yeah, yeah. and then also a lot of the people writing these pieces are often freelancers. Yes. They yeah. they can't afford to burn a bridge with XYZ, you know, publicity group or whatever, yeah. or, you know, the the publication they're writing this for that they can afford to, to burn this bridge. So yeah. their, their editors are too afraid to, like, push them to really tell yeah. a more honest story and honest picture. And then also, like, there's a whole other consideration of like fandom to be afraid yes. of yeah. um yeah like the way that fandoms work especially for for megastars like some singers mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. some actors not as much mostly singers but yeah. there there's like this whole range of things that can happen to you if you piss off a you know certain fandom like yeah. so yeah there's just like there are a lot of things that are contributing to the way that the profile has been transformed in probably not great ways, but it, it's not really a case of like this being a hit piece in any case. Um, yeah. The nuance that the real truth is like somewhere in the middle, which nobody, yeah. uh, or a lot of people don't really care about. Yeah. Anymore. Like on the celebrity end of it, I can also empathize a little bit as to why they're being so reactionary and caping for him. Because I think, I think they see now critical feedback as I'm either canceled forever or they think I'm a terrible person um, and I don't get any gigs or everyone loves me to the point of mania and they just got a little bit trigger happy with what yeah, they, and they this was you know yeah and they confused some segment of reader response with the actual piece yeah. and the the author of that piece yeah, yeah and then on the reader's point side you know they they really confused being an annoying person with being like an abusive uh, person like an abusive yeah, asshole yeah. Yeah. well is that that evergreen tweet of like just because someone does something that you don't like doesn't necessarily mean that it's abusive. Like, they could mm -hmm. just be doing something you don't like. Yeah, that's gold. That's, uh, gotta remember that. You gotta always. remember that. Not, not everything is abuse. <laughs> um, no. yeah, this is, this know. has been fascinating. Um, it, it truly has. Yeah. <laughs> that's it for us this week. If you are watching anything you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us or DM us at criticismisdead on Twitter and Instagram. We will be doing an end of year. That will be our next episode, but we will obviously continue to be watching TV over the break and into the new year. Time never ends until it does. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> yeah, send, send us Rex uh, anytime. 
So for extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Welcome to our new listeners as well. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with uh, five stars. Otherwise, don't worry about it. And maybe (laughs) uh, please just, you know, tell tell a friend about us. Why not? Um, See you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelinkeskin Lu and Jenny Gijon. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.